You're listening to Next Gen Dem, a podcast where you will hear from the young progressives who are shaping the future of the Democratic Party. I'm Max Warren, and you can join me every other week to meet the next generation of liberal leaders, hear about the causes that matter to them, and learn how you can get involved too. Hello, everyone. This is episode 12 of Next Gen Dem. Uh, my guest on today's show is Eric Lesser. You may know him as one of the prominent young faces of the Obama administration, where he initially served as special assistant to David Axelrod and then moved on to a role with the Council of Economic Advisors. But he's come a long way since then, graduating from Harvard Law and now serving as one of the youngest members of the Massachusetts State Senate. Eric and I delve into a number of topics in this episode, including his first foray into politics in high school, his proudest White House achievement, which also may have been his most embarrassing moment, and how you need to create your own destiny if you want to run for office. Hope you'll enjoy. Eric Lesser, thank you so much for joining me on on Next Gen Dem. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Max. It's uh, you know we met uh, we met a, a few weeks back uh, in Detroit and uh, you know but I and I was inspired and, and hearing about your story I've actually had you on my list of people to interview for a while so I, I'm super excited uh, to chat with you and and see how this goes. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for your project. You know, any any uh, any time I get to share a podcast with PG Sittenfeld is a is a good day for me. So, <laughs> P- PG is you know he's a Cincinnati guy, but uh, but apparently uh, apparently nationally known these days. So th- so that's exciting. Um, but let's let's dive right in. So I was I was doing a little bit of research on you and reading and reading some articles uh, as one does, and and I noticed an article back. I think it was in the in the Harvard Crimson uh, where a friend of yours uh, said of you it was a great quote. He said that that you practically came out of the womb focused on public service. Uh, is that true? Uh, you know, can you tell me a little bit about you know, your early days and your, your, your sort of your youngest uh, political engagement? Yeah, I mean, so that, that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. But, you know, what, what happened for me is uh, I really felt politics in a very real personal way in my own community. I was uh, 16 years old. I was a junior in high school. And there were a round of uh, education cuts done on a state level that impacted the town I live in, in western Massachusetts. About 40 teachers were threatened with layoff. Uh, And I remember, actually, our our school principal uh, called everybody into an assembly and basically said, you know, this teacher won't be here next year. This teacher won't be here next year. This program isn't going to be here next year. This class is going to get cut back and not be here next year. And I remember just fuming, very angry. Uh, It didn't seem fair to me that 15 and 16 and 17 year olds uh, should have to pay the price for bad decisions, frankly, that had been made somewhere else. So uh, we organized, we put a coalition together of parents, teachers and students, we knocked on every door in my town, there were 5700 doors. Um, And we were ultimately able to reverse those cuts and, uh, and save those teacher jobs. And I remember actually, um, they literally ripped up the pink slips that have been issued to our high school teachers after the override, the budget override vote passed. And it was really an early lesson for me that, you know, politics and the political process, despite all the messiness, despite all the frustrations, you know, can actually be a way to make a difference. So I, I kind of caught the bug from that. Totally. I mean, I think, see, you know, a lot of people think, oh, none of this stuff matters. But you saw at a very early age, at a very local level, uh, that, you know, people that you elect and the decisions that they make have real ramifications. Uh, and, and it must have been frustrating because you didn't even have the ability to vote. 
Yeah, and the interesting thing too was uh, so there were actually two votes. So um, you know, this was an early lesson for me in politics too. Our first vote was proposing an eighteen percent tax increase, which <laughs> you don't need to be a brain surgeon to know that that's going to be a tough political sell. And the um, and the vote failed miserably. Uh, and and actually, what happened is the cuts were instituted, and the pink slips were issued, and the teachers were were given their notice that they were going to be terminated. And then you know shit kind of got real (laughs) and uh and people understood what this was going to mean and uh and understood how the school and how the community was going to really change if these cuts happened the way they were uh the way they were proposed uh so what we did is we went right back up onto the ballot with a compromise measure that basically got about 60 percent of what we wanted and uh and that vote and that vote did pass and uh and a large portion of those teacher jobs were saved not all of them uh, but a much, much larger portion than if the original uh, vote, um, if the original no vote stayed. So, you know, it was an early lesson that people need to understand and see the political process in very real, very concrete terms. How will this impact them and their family? If it's abstract, if it's a bunch of people arguing with each other, if the uh, arguments are intellectual uh, and ephemeral rather than um, on the corner and, and street level and real and tangible, uh, then you're going to have a tough time having success. But if the connection can be made between a political decision and an actual real life thing, like a science teacher or a basketball coach, uh, then then you'll 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 usually see success especially on the local level, the science teacher or basketball coach is your next door neighbor. Um, or, or even exactly. was, even was your science teacher, you know, <laughs> depending on your age, you know, back in the day. So, um, well, you took that lesson and, and you obviously dove into to politics in a, in a more structured way. And, and I'm skipping time in your biography, but you eventually made your way to the uh, Obama campaign. And, and we've all heard of that guy. Uh, pretty, pretty cool. Pretty successful. <laughs> yeah. um, how did how did that all come together? And, and, and you know, what was what was the campaign like? Yeah, I mean, well, what really spoke to me about President Obama, and people maybe forget this about his early bio, but he was a community organizer, uh, and he believed in empowering communities and in working to make change from the neighborhood and the community up. Uh, And that was really what drew me to uh, Obama, because I sort of saw a little bit of myself and my work from high school in him uh, and in his story. Uh, And I first got connected to him because I I worked as a student volunteer on Deval Patrick's campaign for governor in Massachusetts in 2006. And this was a just really path-breaking, history-making campaign in Massachusetts, a really, really big deal uh, when Deval Patrick was was elected. And I remember I was a student organizer at Harvard at the time, and Obama was coming to do a kind of final turnout rally at Roxbury Community College uh, in Boston. And I sent out an email to our list of students, uh, you know, who had been helping Deval saying, hey, you know, we're going to go to this rally. Everybody should come, you know, meet at the T-stop, and we'll all go together. And you know how this is, Max, because you've been involved in this stuff. I was expecting, you know, 10, 15 people to show up max. Totally. And <laughs> and I got to the T-stop, which is our, you know, our subway. And, um, and there were well over 100 people. I mean, there were so many people. And most of them were people I had never met before, even though I had been very active in politics on campus. And I began to realize, wait a second, there's something really special about this guy. Um, so I read his books. I 
followed what he was doing and, and basically decided I wanted to do uh, anything I could to help him out after I graduated. Uh, so I just started driving in New Hampshire basically every weekend. I dropped my thesis. Uh, I dropped a lot of other things going on in my life, senior year of college, and just basically went every weekend up to New Hampshire to help him out, knock on doors. This was before he even really had an office set up. And uh, and eventually got hired to uh, to help out in New Hampshire. And then my kind of big, big break was um, after the New Hampshire primary was over is when uh, the, the you know they moved to a big national campaign. Super Tuesday was the next big contest, 22 states all in one day. And that's when they rent a big plane. And, uh, you know, they paint his name on the side and they put, you know, 40 reporters travel along everywhere we go. So I was hired to be the ground logistics coordinator was the title. But really what that meant was I was like the mom on a family vacation from hell, (laughs) keeping track of uh, all the reporters and all the staff members, luggage and blackberries and dealing with all the logistics and tracking down loose odds and ends uh, everywhere we went. And uh, it was a, it was just an incredible experience. Went to 47 states, uh, was with the, was with President Obama, then Senator Obama, when he gave his speech on race in Philadelphia at the convention in Denver, at all three debates, um, you know, through small towns, through big cities, through uh, basically the entire primary and general election process. And uh, when that was over, I was asked by uh, by David Axelrod to be his uh, special assistant at the White House. So I had a little cubby. Uh, next to David's office, about 50 feet from the front door uh, of the Oval Office. And the the best way I describe that job is it was a little bit like the Donna Moss character in uh, The West Wing. <laughs> it must have been a, an incredible political education. I mean, obviously, the campaign and, and seeing seeing you know all those states and but but working with David Axelrod, who's been through it all and um, you know is really credited as being the the mastermind behind it all. You know what what are some of the things you learned from him and what, what was that like just sitting sitting near him? It must have been a lot of pressure, but also a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was the most intense. Uh, it, it was simultaneously, you know, the the hardest experience I think I've ever had professionally, and also um, the most rewarding until serving an elected office myself, which I, you know, we should definitely get into. But um, what I would say is, is uh, you know, a couple things I learned. One is, is um, you know, even at the level of the White House, even in Washington, even working for the president of the United States, you forget, you know, real people and you forget, again, what I said at the beginning, making that concrete connection at your own peril. Uh, and that ultimately you, you can't lose sight of the why, you know, uh, we get a little bit consumed in politics, especially in Washington with the how, uh, with the who's up and who's down, uh, with the, uh, the policy analysis and the political brinksmanship. Uh, but something that I learned from David and from President Obama is to never forget the why uh, and to make sure that the why infuses everything you do uh, and, and every action you take uh, and everything you and every time you talk about it or communicate what you're trying to do. You know, don't forget the real families, the real people, the real stakes uh, for, for why we do this work. So I obviously do want to get to, to, to you running for office and, and what you're doing now, but I, but I do have to ask, I mean, is there one moment or one accomplishment you're most proud of from your time in the White House? 
Uh, I mean, there were there are so many. Uh, you know, I think um, you know probably the most intense was the the whole process leading towards healthcare reform, and the and then the night uh, healthcare reform finally passed. Um, you know, I remember my boss uh, David Axelrod. You know, he has a daughter who was um, who has chronic epilepsy. Uh, you know, when he was younger, he struggled to pay uh, the medical bills for his family. Uh, and I remember we were so exhausted. I was wearing ratty jeans. And a, and a beat up polo shirt that I hadn't washed in literally day, days. I had worn it days straight uh, because we were working around the clock in the office. And the moment that the vote was finally secured and we knew that healthcare reform was going to happen, I mean, everyone basically just broke down. Um, and uh, and uh, it was just such an intense feeling to work on something so important to so many millions of people and to do it with such a talented and dedicated team. Uh, so that that's definitely something I'll never I'll never forget. And and a lot of people will never forget either that you that you put in those hours and wore those ratty jeans for so long to make it happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a funny photo uh, that I have somewhere of, uh, of, uh, the, that night, um, president Obama invited the, the whole team. And this was something that was really incredible about him. I mean, obviously the senior folks who worked on that effort, Kathleen Sebelius, Nancy Ender, Parle, Rahm Emanuel, Axelrod, uh, Pete Rouse, just an incredible group of, of insanely talented people, um, you know, invited them all, uh, to, uh, you know, a little party, have drinks, uh, at the, on the Truman balcony the night that the bill passed, but he also invited all the kids. Uh, and I remember he specifically said he wanted all the kids there who worked on it. Uh, so that that was people like me and Katie Johnson and um, Michael Ortiz and uh, Gary Lee and just a bunch of a bunch of young people uh, who were kind of keeping the trains moving, getting the coffee and making the copies for the senior staff. Uh, but I remember um, there's a photo of like basically everyone is in like nice suits celebrating at the White House and I'm still in the jeans and polo shirt outfit with like completely unshaven, like looking like I hadn't slept in days, which was the truth. <laughs> you must have been mortified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. In retrospect, at the time it was pretty embarrassing, although looking back, I guess it's a good story. <laughs> totally. Good for podcasts like this one. Um, so after seeing how hard it is to, 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 to be elected to office and then once you're there, how hard it is to, to pass laws and, and, and frankly, just how much um, animosity and conflict there is in politics, you decided this is what I want to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I ultimately kind of felt like if you want to be involved in politics, you know, walk the walk, go, you know, go run for office, go, go stand in front of a community of people and, and, um, make your pitch for what you want to do, what you want to focus on and, and how you're going to carry their interests forward and represent and advocate for them. And, and I really, I think that this is something that's actually lost right now is not enough young people are actually running for office. And, um, one of the single most important ways we can resist Trump, we can rebuild the democratic bench, we can motivate and inspire a new generation of leaders to step forward is to frankly leave Washington, uh, and leave the think tanks and the consulting firms and all those other things, which are great. And, you know, I've done my share of that stuff too, but, you know, step back into a community, uh, especially a community where you grew up and where you have local ties and where you feel passionate about and, and try your hand at it. And, um, and, uh, you know, it might be 
on a smaller scale than the, the biggest stage in politics, which is Washington. But it's no less important. In fact, in many ways, it's even more important because the issues you deal with on a day-to-day basis are, are very real uh, and felt very directly by people. Uh, so I, I think it's an among the most important elements of rebuilding the Democratic Party right now. Did you? But I would, if you could take me through the process for a second for you, right? Did you say, you know, while you were working for Obama, did you always have this in the back of your mind? You wanted to do this. Did you know it was going to be a, a state level thing? Or was this the position that was open? Like, how, like what was the thought process for yeah, you? And how should yeah. other people think about this themselves? Yeah. So first, I mean, what people should appreciate is, um, you know, there's no pa- there's no set path. You know, it's not like becoming a lawyer or becoming a doctor, you know, where, um, you know, it's very hard and very demanding and very competitive, but it's sort of like a stepped, a step-by-step process that you kind of work yourself through. Every elected official has a different path. Every elected official has a different way they got started. Um, so I think you have to embrace the kind of chaos and uncertainty of it. <laughs> and right. if you're someone who, um, who doesn't, who doesn't thrive off that kind of environment, then, then it might not be the right path for you. And that's okay. And people should understand that about themselves and appreciate it. But for me, I always knew I wanted to do um, impactful work. I wanted to work in a community and I wanted to um, be involved in the political process. Because again, I was very blessed to have that experience as a high school student, seeing what the political process could do uh, to help real people. But for me, it was the timing was not ideal. The situation was tough. I was uh, a 3L uh, at Harvard Law School in my spring semester. I was a few months away from graduating. I had a very lucrative, um, very um, prestigious job lined up at a you know at a big uh, law firm. I uh, hadn't taken the bar yet. I was recently married. And I had a six-month-old baby. Um, so there was every reason in the world not to do this. It was a long shot. Uh, I, I did not step into it. And in fact, I ran in a five-way primary. Uh, most of the candidates I ran against were the age of my parents. And I won my primary by 192 votes wow. uh, and then had a very tough general election uh, after that. So, you know, the point of that is um, – is just if people are listening to this who are thinking about running for office or thinking about jumping in, there is never going to be an ideal time. There is never going to be an application packet you put together, you know, and an interview you do, and then you wait for a callback. It just doesn't work that way. You have to kind of create your own destiny and forge your own future. Uh, and, and it's scary. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying feeling. And most of us, if you're normal, uh, don't feel all that comfortable with stepping up in front of groups of people and, you know, claiming, you know, that, uh, you know, that you that you have some sort of monopoly on wisdom. So I tried to approach it in a, in a humble way. You know, the, the single biggest um, thing I did in terms of time was just knocking on doors. And I used to bring like a, a pad of paper and a, and a pen. And, um, and, you know, when people would have ideas, I would write them down. Uh, and I just did that over and over and over and over again, day after day after day after day. And you really do learn a lot doing that. Yeah, what I've heard from a lot of these these interviews, and it's I haven't just exclusively interviewed people, you know, running for office or or in office, but the biggest piece of advice people seem to give is is it's all about listening, right? Like, I mean, talking is easy, um, but listening, internalizing, and understand how to, how to sort of connect with people and address their concerns is almost more important. 
Yeah, and 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 the thing that you you almost if especially if you've worked in Washington or worked in national politics, there's almost like a uh, like a cleansing process you have to go through, <laughs> which is um, you know most people uh, still view elected officials, especially local elected officials, as really community stewards. And, and, and that's kind of how I view my, my role, which is, you know, I'm part legislator, part community leader, part minister and kind of problem solver and conflict resolver and part kind of community mascot. And, you know, someone who kind of cheers, cheers groups on, cheers, cheers, good, you know, cheers people on, you know, goes to the local sports teams, that kind of stuff. Um, but what I'm not first and foremost is some sort of partisan attack dog. Uh, and I and I noticed this um, a little bit. Uh, this is a little bit of a disconnect, frankly, with the sort of political community in Washington uh, and the way this works outside Washington. Um, I got the least amount of support and got the most skepticism when I made highly partisan, highly divisive um, arguments and attacks on Republicans, or frankly, for that matter, even on Trump, who. You know, I obviously have no uh, love loss for uh, where I got the most traction and got the best feedback and got the most kind of oxygen was when I made inclusive arguments about what I was going to actually do uh, and being very concrete and making sure that those arguments were very tied to where my community was. So I'll give you a, just one small example and well, not that small, actually, but when I was knocking on doors when I first was running in 2014, I noticed something, which is I would often go, you know, in the middle of the day on a weekday. And it would be Wednesday at 2 p.m. and I'd be knocking on door after door. And I kept knocking the door and a, you know, 22-year-old or 24-year-old or 19-year-old able-bodied man or woman would answer the door, hi. And um, instead of being at work or at school, they were home you know, with a, with a drug addiction issue. And it was usually heroin. Um, and I noticed this, uh, and I, and it was in every community, by the way, rich and poor, uh, middle-class, you name it, rural, urban. I actually, I have a very diverse district with a lot of different communities. And I saw this equally in all of them. So I went back and I looked at the data and looked at the, you know, the, the, the research and it matched what I was seeing anecdotally, uh, on the door. So we really shifted our strategy and started to speak much more intensely and much more vocally about substance abuse issues. And that's become a signature item I've worked on. Uh, last year, we were able to pass legislation I sponsored to set up a bulk purchasing program for Narcan, which is a life-saving anti-overdose drug, reduce the cost for police, fire, and EMTs to use. Um, you know, so that's just one example. Uh, and, and, and if you do the campaigning correctly, um, it, it actually creates a feedback loop where you're meeting people, people are telling you what's concerning them, and then you're put you're inserting that feedback into the policy making process. Has well, first of all, that it's 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 scary to think about how this the, the heroin stuff is just permeated everywhere, uh, and it's obviously become um, you know center of attention in the in the healthcare debate that's going on now, but. Um, you know, has has your has your expectations of what being elected official would be like uh, matched up with sort of the reality of the job? So obviously, I'm sure you didn't expect to be walking around your your district, knocking on doors and greeting you know 20 year old heroin addicts, right? I mean, that must have been so jarring. What? How has it been? How has it been sort of the same as what you expected, but also how has it been different? 
Uh, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I think uh, I've actually been uh, pleasantly surprised at how much you really can do. You know, the, these jobs are are really every they're entirely what you make of them. You know, um, you know, it's they don't really come with a blueprint for exactly what you kind of. It's not like you wake up every day and there's a sort of set task list in front of you. Um, it's really kind of of your own making. And that can be a little scary <laughs> uh, because you're kind of learning as you go and kind of and kind of figuring it out as you go. But that's also really invigorating and motivating in the sense that if you're passionate about something and you really, you know, and you really work it, you can make a really big difference. Um, and I'll give you another. And and it doesn't mean that it's a straight line. And there's obviously frustrations along the way, but you really do have uh, an ability to help people uh, and to make a difference. I mean, I'll just give you one example. Uh, just uh, about two years ago, some cuts were proposed to a kindergarten a kindergarten access program that Massachusetts runs. And a, uh, a high-ranking school official from one of the communities I represented called me and said that they would have to lay off a lot of kindergarten teachers. It was over a dozen kindergarten teachers if, um, if these cuts were imposed the way they had been proposed and, and if I could work on, on helping them and getting them overturned. And, you know, it just dawned on me. I mean, the last thing we should be doing in Massachusetts or frankly anywhere in this country is laying off kindergarten teachers. I can't think of a more counterproductive or more, frankly, dangerous policy than laying off kindergarten teachers. Um, so, so we put a team together. We worked with a bunch of other senators from other communities that were impacted. And we lobbied to get the um, uh, to basically do a veto or an override, excuse me, of the governor's veto of the program. And it was successful. Uh, and the cuts were protected or the cuts were avoided. The funding was restored and the kindergarten jobs were saved. And you have moments like that in Washington and you certainly have moments like that when you work in national politics, but it's not as immediate uh, and it's not as concrete. Right, you can't and see, touch and feel it in the same way you can locally. Right. I mean, I, I literally, after that was done, I literally went and visited the kindergarten teachers and went to the kindergarten classrooms. Um, and so I just think for people who are feeling frustrated or, or, or they're feeling like they don't know what to do or they're feeling, um, you know, like we all feel like you want to pull your hair out with what's going on. My advice is, you know, there's 50 other capitals in this country uh, where a lot of really important work is happening. And something Republicans did uh, very methodically um, with a lot of focus and effort and time and attention was was build out really deep talent benches in the 50 other capitals uh, while Obama was president. Frankly, they were doing this. And Democrats need to learn from that and we need to do it ourselves. And so, you know, you, you, some of the most talented people in our party right now, whether it's Jason Kander, Peter Buttigieg, you know, have PG Sittenfeld, who I know you talked to, have never even worked in Washington. Uh, and so I think I think that's where our party needs to, to begin to orient itself. And, and Eric, I think you're on that list, too. I know you're being modest, but uh, but I <laughs> know I don't know about that. <laughs> um, so. So I like to end with some with some rapid fire questions and and you know just just quick answers to these to to, to maybe uh, have maybe something funny will come out of it we'll see but um, a, a little more of a serious note if you weren't an elected official right now uh, you know what would you be doing and maybe the answer is big law I don't know but but what do you think you'd be doing 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I honestly, I, I think about that from time to time. Um, you know, I, I, maybe I'd be practicing law. Uh, you know, I might, I might be, maybe I'd be working at a nonprofit. Uh, I'm not really, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I don't think I would be in Washington right now. Um, so, you know, I'd probably be doing something else in Massachusetts. But, uh, but you know that, that that's not to speak that's not to say that you know the washington work isn't important it's obviously vital uh and essential and we need really good people uh but i you know i felt like i had had my fill of it um when i was down there working for for president obama and and i was ready to do something you know in my home community uh you know um for this phase of my life What's the advice you'd give for somebody who is looking to resist the Trump agenda, but maybe just doesn't feel like like he or she has it in them to, to run for office? What's something else that they can be doing right now uh, to yeah. fight back? Yeah, great, great question. So yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, running for office isn't for everyone. <laughs> so something you can do is you can support uh, someone who you believe in and who you're passionate about who is running. And, uh, you know, just a comment on this, because I think sometimes people feel like, oh, they need to be a bundle or they need to raise all this money to have an impact. That's absolutely not true. Um, obviously, that's important. Fundraising is important. But you can provide moral support. You can you can knock on doors. You can I mean, I can't tell you how important it was when I had friends of mine just call to check in. Or just be, uh, you know, just be someone who you can rely on for advice and for um, and for counsel, uh, or for you know, crowdsourcing ideas and and all kinds of things. So I would say, number one, you know, maybe try to help or support someone who you believe in who is running. Uh, but then number two, um, you know, aside from that, is find something really concrete to work on and argue for. When when the chips are down and when it feels like we're kind of on the ropes or we're on the outside, that's when you kind of need to get back to basics. So my advice to people who are looking for what to do, looking for how to engage is whatever you do, whatever you're passionate about, just make sure it's concrete rather than abstract because concrete, you know – chiseling off with um with concrete specific actions that you can notch victories on will build momentum and build confidence and build energy for the bigger fights that we will need to have once we're back you know in office so you know whether that's you know things related to healthcare or things related to substance abuse or things related to the environment or to economic justice or to civil rights uh you know these are all really important issues and we need people really focused on the on the step by step building blocks to making that bigger change all right, and, la- and last question for you because I know you have to go. But are, who are some of the uh, up and coming Democrats you admire? You, you mentioned Jason Kander and Pete Buttigieg, but but are there other people that that we should be thinking about that maybe haven't entered into the mainstream uh, yet? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I, I feel really lucky. One of the one of the great things I've really loved about being in Massachusetts is we have this really deep bench of just really talented people. Um, Michelle Wu, uh, who's the city council president in uh, in Boston, uh, very, very talented. She's a friend of mine from law school, is doing great, great work in Boston. Uh, you've got another great Boston city councilor, Josh Zakum. We actually have a, a great crew of young 
um, state reps and state senators here in Massachusetts. We have a little millennial caucus we've created uh, to, to kind of um, sync up with them. You know, really talented folks like Adrian Madaro, uh, Juana Matias from Lawrence, uh, a guy, Julian Sear, who's from Cape Cod, Joe Boncori, who's from Winthrop, which is a community just north of, of uh, Boston. There's actually a Republican I do a lot of work with, Ryan Fatman, nice guy, really smart, has a young a young baby about the same age as my kids, so uh, we bonded over that. He's from Central Mass. So Bipartisanship works locally. Yeah, yeah. see, so, there, so there's a lot. Uh, I would actually say one of the really encouraging things about the Democratic Party right now is, you know, Michael Blake, great, um, great guy who I worked with in the Obama administration, who's a state assemblyman in the Bronx doing fantastic work there right now. Um, Buffy Wicks, a friend of mine I worked with, uh, also in the Obama administration running for state assembly in California. So, you know, my, I think where people can get some encouragement is if you look below the surface, uh, there's quite a lot happening, uh, that's very, very positive, uh, and a lot of really good, talented people kind of ready to bubble up to the surface and, uh, and make change on a national level. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me and I completely agree. I hear, I heard knock, knock, knock at the door. So I didn't have to go, <laughs> but, but Eric, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I really, really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Max. Take care. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Gen Dem. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're interested in hearing future episodes, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Google Play. Also, check out my website for links to all past episodes. That's www.nextgendem.com. I come out with a new episode every couple of weeks, so I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much.